We are doing our special issue of Community Change on the wake of the President Trump election and looking at ways of democratic community change and social justice activism and other kinds of responses that are happening within the community to institutional reforms, interpersonal struggles, community struggles, and the work of the Race and Social Policy Research Center at Virginia Tech seemed really pertinent to that discussion. So we wanted to reach out today to Dr. Warren Reed, the executive director of that center, to have a discussion about a lot of these issues. And I am Mary Ryan, and I am on the editorial board of Community Change, and I am a doctoral candidate in the ASPECT program here at Virginia Tech. Um, which stands for the Alliance for Social, Political, Ethical, and Cultural Thought. And I am doing my dissertation on structural racism in the U.S. federal government. I am Jake Kyle. I'm a Ph.D. candidate here at Virginia Tech in the Planning, Governance, and Globalization program. I'm also an, uh, on the editorial board for Community Change, and my research deals with agential possibilities amongst um, Iraqis who have come to the U.S. as refugees since 2003. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Reed. Um, I'll just read your bio briefly. Um, Dr. Warney Reed obtained his PhD in sociology at Boston University. Currently, he is a professor of sociology and Africana studies and director of the Race and Social Policy Research Center at Virginia Tech. Previously, he developed and directed social science research centers at three universities, including the William Monroe Trotter Institute at UMass Boston. Among his scholarly accomplishments, Reed directed the project Assessment of the Status of African Americans, which involved 61 scholars and resulted in the production of a four-volume work published by Auburn House Publishers. He is the past president of the National Congress of Black Faculty and the Association of Black Sociologists. Currently, he is a member of the steering committee of the Montgomery County Dialogue on Race Project. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, this interview is being transcribed for the Community Change Journal, which is a peer-reviewed in-house journal here at Virginia Tech. Um, so, as I mentioned, you are the director of the Race and Social Policy Research Center at Virginia Tech. Can you tell us a little more about what the center does and what you do in your role there? Okay, the center is primarily a research center, and it does research on race, and uh, as a result, social policy issues related to race. Um, significantly for some graduate students, uh, we also have a certificate program in race and social policy, where students uh, can get this certificate if they take the course race and social policy and then any of a long list of courses for nine other credits so that so that's four courses required to get this certificate in uh, race and social policy so we have uh, two or three students doing that every year and we sponsor an annual workshop that we call the Combating Racial Justice Workshop, racial injustice, that is, <laughs> a workshop. And we co-sponsor other events uh, on campus with, with other groups. 
and we have involved uh, a number of graduate students in the work at the center. So uh, we're in the process of trying to produce some of that uh, more formally than what we have done in the past. And Dr. Reed, uh, you recently spoke at the CityWorks Expo in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, can you briefly summarize for us uh, your discussion there? Uh, that may be a, a, a little difficult since I've given about three or four speeches since then. <laughs> so let me see. I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure I remember what that one was all about. Let's see. Um, um, I remember some of the things I said, but I don't remember what the whole thing was <laughs> what, what was about. Uh, did either of you attend that? Unfortunately, I know we did not. Oh, okay. Both out of town. Okay, then you could have reminded me of something. <laughs> then we'd have been rolling. <laughs> well, we, we can jump to the next question, yeah. if that's easier. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think it, they probably are things that you're talking about. Right. So, so rather than trying to remember that, why don't you just ask me what you want to know? <laughs> so we'll, we'll jump into the, the good stuff. Um, so where do you think we are right now, just kind of starting off broadly, in terms of race and diversity as a country, are these times that we're in new or different? That's a good question. And I got this question the night before last, uh, down in Whitfield, where I was giving a talk, uh, because some people were questioning, um, uh, aren't we so much better than we used to be, and why is all this discussion about race? And I say it's very difficult to demonstrate that we're a lot better off than we were in, say, a couple of generations ago. Very, very difficult. Uh, so where we are is in a pretty, um, desperate, not too pleasant situation. And so let me demonstrate, <laughs> okay. Um, as I told the group the other night, a black man in New York State is two or three times more likely to be arrested today than a black man in Mississippi in 1920. Uh, a black man is more likely to go to prison today than back then. Black men and women go to prison at an increasing rate up until very, very recently, the last few years, there's been a little, little slowdown in that. But for several decades, there's been an increase in the incarceration of African Americans. Yet, the crime rate has been going down for 40 years. There's only been one little period of time where there was a blip up, but that was just in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Other than that, it's been going down. And we've been building so many prisons like here in Virginia that we have one that was never occupied because people <laughs> are not being uh, railroaded into prison fast enough to keep up with building the prisons. So, so that's a... Uh, pretty, uh, 
a bad thing that says that we're not where we think we might be. Um, there are some other examples that I could give, but the, the most critical one for me is the criminal justice system, which uh, has always been used to uh, kind of keep African Americans down. And it is in full force right now. In fact, we were beginning to turn a corner, it seemed, with the uh, use of the policies and practices statute that we have to go after police departments if the Department of Justice uh, thought that they were committing uh, racial discriminatory acts in their policing. However, right now, we, 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 last year this time, 25 police departments were under investigation or about to be under investigation. Today we have zero because of the change in policy. So we are, we are stepping way back, not a half step back. This is, this is way back. So that's um, one of the things that's happening. So we are probably not as well off we certainly not as well off as many people think. There was this whole long discussion in the 1990s about the growth of the black middle class. And I was always looked at like I had horns when I would go around the country arguing that that's not so. See, the issue was that every class increased, but the middle class increased at a slower rate than the lower class of African Americans. But that's not what everybody was sold, including African Americans. Okay. We have a situation in Virginia uh, where blacks and whites use marijuana at about the same rate. Yet blacks go are, are, are arrested at five times the rate of whites. Uh, and by the way, uh, as I explain this, one of the problems we have of convincing people about this is people can't do arithmetic. So we're way behind in arithmetic, too, okay? Because uh, as I tell students, if somebody gives you a number and they don't give you a denominator, ignore it because it doesn't have much meaning. It's, it's got to be compared to what? Compared to previous, compared to something or the other. And so in these lines, people say, but yes, are you saying they arrest people for smoking marijuana or having a lot of marijuana? When they don't have it, I said, no. Well, then they would say, well, what's wrong with that? You're arresting someone who's guilty. I say, yes, but you should arrest everyone who's guilty and at the same rate. And that's what's not what's happening. In Virginia, uh, African Americans are about 20% of the population. They're about 22% of all illegal substance users. But they're 75% of all people who go to prison. And that has implications all over every aspect of African-American life and increasingly the life of everyone else, but people not paying any more attention to that than they are about climate change. <laughs> okay, so uh, we, if we are better than we were, say, 50 years ago, it's marginal. Let me give you another example. Uh, we have in the center that I direct, the Race and Social Policy Center, we've been looking at uh, employment discrimination nationally. 
And so we've been looking at national data from the census on, on income of employed persons, fully employed persons, so that we can 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 not have the data, uh, you know, uh, be a little more difficult to 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 interpret with people having varying levels of participation in the labor force and so on. So we're talking about just people who are fully employed and compare their income. Okay. In 1967, African Americans made 65 cents for every dollar that whites earn. In 2005, they earned 66 cents. We particularly look at this period because we started having the laws just a couple of years before that instituted against discrimination. See, let's say in 1957, it was perfectly legal to discriminate. Okay, it's not in 1967 but newly <laughs> not illegal. But we have had virtually no change in the discrimination in employment as we look at it for fully employed people. So where we are is not where all too many people think we are. Okay, and, and, and post-racial is so absurd that I've never entered a conversation about it. So where we are is, is uh, not nearly where we should be. And so then in light of all of that context and in the midst of this current uh, political climate in the United States, has this influenced your work that you're working on currently? The election of Trump in 2016 and some of the other things we've seen as 2017 has progressed? No, it hasn't influenced my work, <laughs> not at all. Uh, we were already doing it because I've been seeing this racism forever. Uh, what we have seen with the, uh, with the uh, Trump uh, phenomenon is uh, a presidential campaign that was based on race that too few of the national media is willing to admit. This was a white nationalist campaign simple is that. That's, that's not to say this is the way it's interpreted. I mean, this is, these are the words and the same things they did as they were running for office, the white nationalist campaign. And yet, uh, uh, people, that is, many analysts, many mainstream newspapers want to make the argument that it's about disaffected workers. That's not true, by the way. Studies have been done <laughs> that showed that the voting population that was concerned about their economic futures, that had some concern about the future in terms of economic issues and jobs and so on, the majority of people having that as a high priority in their thoughts and beliefs and feelings voted for Hillary Clinton. The people who thought that minorities were taking the country over and taking it away from whites, the majority of those people voted for Trump. So it was race. And so one of the differences is uh, it hasn't affected my work, but it's just sometimes slowed it with me trying to agonize over why we can't get more people to look at the data and, and admit what's going on. So we, we kind of have a problem there. So 
you've spoken about your center and the work that you're doing. And in the last answer, you just started talking about the country's grappling with the race. So what have you changed? What changes since the election have you seen with the way the country is engaging with issues of race and racism? I, there probably are some changes there in that we have more discussion about race than we did before, and we have more people um, willing to say that something is racial discriminatory uh, than we did, say, two years ago. <laughs> So I think that's that has changed. Um, we don't have enough of the analysts and the mainstream media addressing how the lives of minority people are being changed by policies that are being implemented. They're spending too much time talking about the, 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 the what do you, I guess the, 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 the the political issues without concern about the content issue. The political mean well, oh, the president, they, 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 if they don't pass the tax uh, bill, then they won't have done anything. We, we have very little discussion in the mainstream media, I would argue. We have discussion, but not, not enough about um, what that would mean for everyday lives. For instance, the Trump administration has let the CHIP program expire, okay? Uh, there may be dire consequences from that. And let me give you a for instance. When Mr. Reagan came into office, 1980, uh, and started cutting uh, programs in what is now the Department of Health and Human Services, and he cut the uh, maternal and infant care program. And many of us predicted that it would affect the well-being and the lives of poor people and African-Americans. And it did. For two years in a row, during the mid-1980s, the life expectancy of African-Americans went down for the first time since we've been keeping a record of it because of the maternal infant care. And so the Congress eventually put that back on order and then the things got such that we started having um, the, the normal and regular uh, increases in life expectancy because life expectancy is really based upon how many children live to not be children. <laughs> it's not how many old people live to be older. But that's another discussion. <laughs> <clears throat> and so uh, to kind of preface this next question, we see that some people understand racial disparities in the United States as a product of individual choices and behaviors. And so according to this view, low achievement is due to the fact that people of color are making poor personal choices and not taking responsibility for um, their own problems. And so how does your work dispel this misunderstanding? 
Oh, we spend all of our time <laughs> basically uh, making an argument against that. That's, that's kind of what we do, okay? Um, we have even published a piece uh, out, of, out of the center in the Chronicle of Higher Ed uh, it, uh, that's kind of related to it, but, but, but not, not directly. Um, we, we and I, I, whatever I talked about at CityWorks, it dealt with this. It, it dealt with uh, the argument that the assumption that people have is that, well, what is racism? The racism is, is something that uh, bigoted individuals do intentionally. And so that's two kind of problems with that statement, even though the statement could be correct. But it, it does not describe much. It describes a little part of what's going on. Uh, and that is that, uh, now I dispel the first one, which is intent. Intent is irrelevant. It does not matter, so we spend a lot of time about that. Intent is totally irrelevant in things social. As a sociologist, I argue that it's the most irrelevant term for any sociologist and most other social scientists. That intent is seriously relevant in some psychological work. It's seriously relevant in legal work because you must have intent sometimes to be convicted of some kind of um, crime. But it is totally unimportant in things social. So that's so intent is irrelevant. And then let's get back to spending all the time looking at individuals and making the assumption that prejudice leads to racism. That is the 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 uh, a, a main tenet of what I call the institutionalized thought structure in this country. Is that well, racism comes from prejudice. People are prejudiced, and therefore, if they are, it's unfortunate, and they therefore uh, commit racism. That might be true, but that's the minor direction for the era. The more major direction of the era is from racism to prejudice, because no one is born prejudiced. It has to come from somewhere. So we spend a lot of time, that's what we do in the center, and when I speak, about how prejudice comes from racism more so than the other way around, because nobody's born prejudice. So it has to come from somewhere. It can't just pop out of the air. And where does it come from? It comes from racism, which then we begin to talk about something larger than the individual. It's the environment in which the person grows. It's, it's, it's the thing, the place that they are, whatever, whether it's media, their social friends, their geography, where they're from, it's, it's, the, it's the racism there. And what I mean by the racism there is not whether someone calls a black person the N-word. I'm talking about whether or not they affect how well that black person lives, how well and how long they live. And to me, that's what racism is. How well, how long they live. The, that's real racism. The other stuff I call petty racism, minor stuff. <laughs> and we spend all too much attention in this society on that. For example, as horrible as the Charlottesville riots were, it was all about symbolic stuff. As despicable as I've held Confederate symbols all my life, it's still symbolic. And while we're arguing over that, um, black people are going to prison in 
Virginia at five, at almost four times the rate they should in comparison to whites for drugs. That's real racism. Um, now, to kind of summarize what I'm trying to argue here is that individual racism is of more minor consequence. But I do admit that individual racism can be really, really serious. And I use the example of the 1963 bombing of the church in Birmingham. This and that killed the four little girls. This is this was act. This this was an act of individual racism. There were three or four people involved, but it was not an institution. It was just these individuals. It wasn't even the Ku Klux Klan. It was member people who kind of belonged to it. So these individuals uh, bombed this church. Now that was horrible. So how can I minimize what they were doing? Here's how I do. The most heinous thing that happened then was that they weren't prosecuted. That was a systemic issue. That was systemic racism. And that's the racism that many of us have been fighting for decades. That they didn't prosecute it. They prosecuted it like 50 years later, or 60 years later or something. Okay, uh, I guess 50 years later. Uh, so, I probably varied from your question, but <laughs> that's my response. So, um, building off our conversation of racism and bringing in um, a little more explicitly some issues of white privilege and some of these ideas, we're seeing public discourses of racial resentment as a potential motivator or explanation for the election of President Trump in 2016. So what do you make of this? What do you think of racial resentment? If, if it means that um, uh, a criticizable segment of the population resented um, the society's acceptance of more non-whites into positions of power and privilege and, 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 and so on. If that's what it means, then I think it was right on. In fact, that's what the election was, I would argue. It was about that. Uh, it was about people who res resented their loosening grip that on uh, white privilege. Okay, uh, and Mr. Trump played into it. In fact, Mr. Trump does not get anywhere in this election without having created the Bertha issue. In the spring of 2016, uh, the majority of Mr. Trump's supporters uh, did not believe Obama was born in the United States, okay? And even after he was nominated for the presidency and therefore didn't have to share the Republican side of it, uh, about 20% of his supporters thought that African Americans should not have been freed at the end of the Civil War. Uh, now, that certainly was, those were new expressions of what some of us have been 
pointed out all along, and I'm a great follower of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which which kind of um, uh, keeps tabs on the hate groups and so on. So I've seen them just through the years. So I've known that they've been de developing. Uh, but yes, I think racial resentment in that sense, yes, I think racial resentment is is a, is a, a key issue. But it's a nice way of saying racism. Uh, racial resentment, <laughs> yeah. And you've, you've mentioned uh, that you think that this institutional racism, particularly in prisons and in the criminal justice system, is a, a very salient issue. Are there other issues that you see as particularly important at the present in the United States? Yes. Em employment has hardly, hardly improved. So I've pointed out some data related to full employment. But uh, we have data, this, this data is like 20, 20 years old, but we have data from the EEOC work throughout the periods the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, showing the discrimination across the board by industries. We have data on that. We have data on that for Virginia. We have that data, <laughs> uh, uh, it's EEOC data, but we have uh, uh, some summaries of it in the, in, in the center. So that's another area, okay. Um, to me, I spend much, uh, much of the time on that, and I don't, I'm trying to avoid getting into uh, another area, which is health and medical care. Where I spend, I've been spending time for 40 years, okay, okay, in health and medical care. Um, so there are two areas. So we have health and we have medical care, okay. In the late 1990s, Congress asked the Institute of Medicine to determine whether what folks like me were arguing all the time about the discrimination in the provision of medical care, whether that existed and to what extent. Okay, now we're talking about the provision of medical care independent of access. We're saying once they get into the medical facility, do we have disparities? And so what the most prestigious medical body in the country decided after studying this for several years, they demonstrated with data, <laughs> they studied studies of this and showed that, that African Americans are discriminated against in the provision of medical care service uh, it, it widespread, okay? And what we mean by that is, an, it typically, to think about it, is an African American, a white person goes to a physician, has a set of symptoms, and has a diagnosis. A black person goes to a physician, has the same set of symptoms, and the same diagnosis, but they get different treatment regimens. That's happening all over the place. And, it, and, and, and these are the kinds of things that matter more than symbolic things, okay? 
Well, let's go to health. What we have come to now is to understand something a little bit more complicated, but many of us have been pushing this and talking about it for years, is that the society itself has racially discriminatory elements that affect the health of African Americans. To explain that, a couple of pediatricians decided to study this, what they call, they, they had a hypothesis that this, this was racism. How is it these upper middle class black women have so many more adverse birth outcomes? than upper middle class white women, okay? And they came up with the hypothesis that it was racism. So they had, to, they had to test it. And the way they tested it was to take a look at um, the birth outcomes for European Americans in, a, in the United States and African Americans and uh, Africans newly in America. Africans newly in America had the same uh, rate of adverse birth outcomes as whites. African Americans didn't have much higher. And then after Africans from Africa were here longer, their, birth, their, adverse, their adverse birth outcomes became more and more like that of African Americans. So we're talking about a society. So some people deal, deal with a lot of things about society and don't deal with kind of factual things like I like to point out and uh, and this kind of supports that work. So this might seem like an obvious question, but why should people care about these challenges? Um. I used to have a phrase that I was trying to think of it the other day that I used to use to, to advocate that very point, why um, uh, it's, uh, um, I've forgotten the phrase that I used to use, I, can't, I know I'm not going to think of it now because I couldn't think of it the other day, but um, just like climate change affects everyone. Okay. Racial discrimination can have that same effect. It changes communities such that we can measure communities and their rate of producing ill health. To the ex so the issue is, for example, all of these people who go to prison get out. And when they get out, uh, and are not able to get jobs, things happen that put other people's life and safety at risk. But also, what happens in communities are degraded in terms of, uh, of the kind of climate you have, and that climate affects everyone, okay? And so everyone living near a city is gonna be affected by the deterioration of a city. And the more we do this to people, the more we cause a deterioration of some communities. For example, there's 
following on to your question, there's an assumption, based on that assumption, that the ghettos are the result of some depravity of African Americans. When in my courses, we go through details and showing how they were developed. It's all a part of policies and practices, racist policies and practices, almost always. And then on top of that, you have people who uh, have less education and can't get a job. I mean, and this produces a situation such that 70, over 70% 70 of all African-American babies born in America are born to single women. And we're not talking about morality here, we're talking about the fact that half of these will be poor. And when you're poor, you're not gonna live as long, you're gonna have more problems, and you have more problems with the society, it costs more, much more money in taxes to, 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 to educate these people, and so on and on and on. So everybody is in this together. Uh, and one of the reasons some people can earnestly and honestly ask that question is because we have um, such a heightened sense of individualism in this country. I argue that it is the, it is the overriding um, ethos of this country, individualism, such that we say I more than me. It's becoming much more, uh, much easier now for people to just say, why should I care about that person? Why should I pay taxes that, that would benefit somebody else? A few people used to say that. Many more people are saying it now. Okay. And so people are, are, are asking those questions because they have those kind of ideas, but the reason for paying the taxes is, is a, it's, it's a consideration of we. And I've been making the argument recently that um, there are cultural differences between English-speaking people in America and English-speaking people in Europe. European countries have more of a we approach. Not that they don't have that problem, but they have more of a we approach. So therefore, it, it, it's, uh, they don't, they don't tend to, they haven't in the past until very recently had that kind of a argument about why should I pay taxes for somebody else. Okay. So we've covered the why people should care about these challenges, and our next question then is, how do we get more people to care about these issues and these challenges? Well, I have a belief, <laughs> and it's a belief I operate on, that, um, People, this is not new, it's, it's came from the Black Power movie, we used to say it all the time, people proceed as they perceive. And so I spent a lot of time analyzing and looking at data about what people perceive. You know, and I asked this question another kind of way. What is that people know and how do they come to know it? Okay. And that's a roundabout way of addressing your question, what do we do <laughs> about it? Uh, I think the very first thing we have to do is to make people aware of these issues. For example, oh, I'll continue that, to make people aware of them, and then you can then maybe talk about what to do to get rid of them. If you make them aware that racism is an attribute of institutions, and that it's kind of a waste of time dealing with individual racism, 
I spoke in a church night before last, and I said, the rector of this Episcopal church, he can deal with that, but the rest of us, we should deal with the real, <laughs> real racism. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> I made a joke to myself, and I forgot my train of thought. <laughs> but any, anyway, so people must have an understanding of things. For example, people talk about having a racial reconciliation in this country. We can't have racial reconciliation in this country, I argue. This is my position. Because we haven't done the first step. We have to uh, have America, uh, that is a large segment of people in this country, a much larger segment than we have now, of people knowing uh, recent history. We don't have people, enough people knowing what happened 60 years ago or 70 years ago or 80 years ago or 90 years ago. So they could have a reconciliation in South Africa because there was no debate on what had happened. They agreed on it. Well, we, we have never had a debate on it in this country. Too many people say, well, I didn't know this or I didn't know that. I didn't know the other. Uh, like, for instance, people don't know when these flags and statues were put up in southern states. For some of us, I've known that virtually all of my adult life. So we have, we have to have people know things, know stuff. And they don't because we don't, um, we don't discuss it. We don't discuss real issues. We do discuss a lot of symbolic stuff but not real historical issues from a sixth or seventh or eighth or ninth grade level. I'm not talking about any, any advanced historical analysis. I'm just saying what happened here, what happened there. Okay, to, it's, and, and, and people can say, oh, I didn't know when I would tell them that my father couldn't go to this school. I didn't know, how could they not know that? We can't, we, we can't get to the next step until people accept that. And we've never had it. We've never had that debate and that argument. I was hopeful many years ago, as I was a youthful follower of the argument of reparations. The reason I follow reparations, I was saying that if we had a debate on reparations, then the, the people pushing it, like people I was following, would have to explain why, but also, the people opposing it would ask, why do you think we should? Then they'd be obligated to hear the why. And so we'd have had that debate. And to me, that debate is much more important than whether or not we got reparations. So that's what I mean by people proceed, proceeding as they perceive. So then, um, and, and I'll just give you like a, a kind of an example. This fall, I've given a series of lecture workshops in this Southwest Virginia, sponsored by the Episcopal Diocese. It kind of stretches, I guess, all, all the way down, all the way up to Staunton or somewhere. Um, and we've operated on the basis of, what I say, people get, just gotta know 
more stuff. So we're talking about knowing stuff. Now the next step is for people to understand that that to address it, we need to address institutional policies and practices. So those two things I tried to get across. Now they're about to move to the next step for trying to convene people to do things. Okay, and, it's, and, 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 and with the assumption that a, some of these people have been moved by our discussions. Oh, since, yeah. Um, so you've talked a lot about education and knowledge um, as things that are absent from the public at large and being ready to have that discussion. What else, if anything, is missing from current activism? And what would you like to see people doing that you don't see happening right now? Well, I am. I have a son who's 40 years old, the older of my two sons. And I've told him all of his life that he's among a, a uh, unique generation of African-Americans. He's the part of the only generation that has ever been born and reached adulthood, adulthood with no self-defining activism. So we had didn't we, we haven't had any since like the year he was born until two, three years ago with the Black Lives Matter. We didn't have any African American activism. Okay. Um and could you ask your question again so I don't bury off of what, because several things occurred to me and I want to make sure I stay, answer your question. So it was a two part. So it was what is missing from current activism and what would you like to see people do? Oh, okay. Doing? Okay. And, and so first of all, there was none. <laughs> okay, I argue. Now we have some, and I agree, and I think they have attacked the most egregious thing going on, the Black Lives Matter movement. And some people don't realize it, but it's uh, the, 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 the theory behind the way they operate is grounded in, in, in a lot of, of socio-historical stuff. That's why you don't see any individual uh, primary leaders. They intentionally are following Ella Baker and September Clark, two immortal names in, uh, in, in black American history that few black Americans even know. <laughs> okay. um, and so now what would I like to see? I would like to see less attention to all this symbolic stuff and more attention to real things. For example, uh, next, I think more important than even black men being shot in the back if they run away by police, which, by the way, was legal in 1980. <laughs> okay, it didn't become, it became kind of illegal in 1985 and then semi-illegal in 1989, but so it's questionable. But anyway, but more important than that is the, is how many, is the damage done to African Americans in particular, and America in general, with the so-called drug war. I was privileged to be on a panel back in the 80s with the guy who discovered the existence of crack. And he, used to, he would say, if you tell me the community that the crack is in, I can tell you without going there where it is. 
But it's interesting, the police, when they get ready to crack down on crack, they go to the black community. When, if blacks and whites use crack, they don't use crack at about the same rate, because blacks use crack more than, at a larger rate uh, 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 than, than whites. But that's the only drug <laughs> they do. Okay. Uh, uh, so what would I like to see is more attention to the criminal justice issues that uh, not necessarily the police killing, but the, um, the drug issues. The, the fact that, for example, in Virginia, I think I mentioned this earlier, that uh, blacks are 20% of the population, about 22% of all illegal substance users, but there are 75% of all people who go to prison. And we don't have much protest about that. Very little. Uh, so I would like to see more of that. I think that's key. If that could be turned around, then m many other things uh, could be dealt with. But that's that's to me that's a primary. That's 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 a a, a larger issue than any other one I know. Our next question is, how do we go about, <clears throat> excuse me, tackling pervasive structural and institutional racism in our society? And maybe we've already covered that, so I'll, to ask a different way, what would different structures, alternative institutions look like that are non-racist or are um, addressing these built-in structural racism issues? Um, I don't think we should try to establish new institutions. I think we should change the ones we have because a society is going to need institutions to do its work and they're going to turn out to be similar things to what we have, <laughs> okay? So we have to change the policies and practices. So I'm, I'm, I'm an advocate of changing the policies and practices. Let's discover wh what it is that's happening that's under the jurisdiction of this institution, and can we trace that to some policies and practices? And I argue if you ask that question, then you inevitably will, okay? And then we have to start pushing to change that. One of the one of the, the things that some n new activists like to do is they like to say, "Well, let's go confront this legislator. Let's go confront this um, legislature, or, this, or whatever." Uh, and I think that's the wrong approach. <laughs> I think the most important thing is to get enough people behind you, and then you can send one or two, and say, "We have this many people who want this thing." And I argue. I may be wrong, but I don't think so. <laughs> that 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 politicians do what people tell them to do. So, like right now, people are arguing about like the tax bill, and of course, the people who are doing the the, the larger telling are the ones who provide the big money, <laughs> and therefore, well, that's a, what some some analysts say. But by and large, if enough people. Uh, get together to attack something, uh, we may have some movement on it, I think. 
So, but I think it has to be specific. I think you have to go after specific things. And so, um, a small group would go after specific things. I hate to see large groups have an auditorium of 100 people. Let's decide what we're going to do. No. We have to have a few people decide what we want to do and then discuss it with the larger group <laughs> and say, are you with us? If not, we're not going to another group <laughs> okay, to go push the issues. And I think we can push them. And one of the things I guess we really need is the education, which is I, I, I'm talking about everyday education of really what happened and how did it get like this. Okay. Uh, for example, we're debating right now the whole tax bill. How many people know that in the 1950s the top rate was over 90 percent? How many? Pe we not many people know that. We have so we have to educate the public quite a bit. Okay, and 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 right now it's kind of a losing battle. Uh, I was. I shouldn't go into all of this, I guess, but I was I was an advocate in the late 1980s of the power of talk radio, and people thought I was crazy as I was talking about it. But I had seen one person change the seatbelt law in Massachusetts, the most liberal voting state in the country. This guy in 1987 changed the seatbelt law. He made it such that only kids had to have used seatbelts because he ran it and railed against it every day. Every day, and so bad that the governor you used to call him the governor because <laughs> this guy was pushing stuff. And, and 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 I say that to say that the losing battle is that so much of the media uh, puts out things that are not exactly correct, <laughs> okay, about the history of how things got to be like they are. And so that's kind of seriously one-sided. So one-sided that I once read an interview with a guy who came up with the idea that the media was, uh, there was a liberal bias in the media. And the guy said, it, 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 this came out, by the way, in the 1990s. This was not out there in the 1970s. And he said, no, I didn't think it was true. And in fact, I didn't think it would catch on like that. I just thought it was something we could deal with right now. <laughs> So switching gears a little bit from some of what we've been talking about, but still in the realm of cultivating social change, what role do you see the university, um, broadly, not Virginia Tech necessarily, but the university at large as a system, what role do you see the university playing in social change? Well, I'm, I'm, I, you uh... People might have liked what I said up so far, but they might not like what I'm going to say from here on. <laughs> but I have to say it because you asked me, and I have to give you my opinion. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think it's incumbent upon universities to present uh, curricula that reflects the world. Okay. So this is going to be a long answer. Okay. So, so I'm going to need you to, to, to help me get back to the second part, but I want to do the, the first part, which is like almost a preamble. I argue that universities, I've been saying this for at least 30 years, that universities are responsible for the racial strife on the campuses. How so? 
Universities play a major role, not their only role, but they play a major role in determining who is important by who they have students required to study. So through the years, things have changed a bit in recent years the way the core curricula work nowadays, but it, but it used to be for years and years that students had to study about dead and live Europeans, European Americans, but nobody else was required. Now, I don't know whether even that's required, <laughs> okay? So that's what the change is. So, so what happened is white students could assume that this is their university. When even before my father could have gone here, People his age were working and paying taxes to build this place. They still couldn't go here. So they still will assume it's that university. Then even after minority students come, they still assume it's that university. Why do they assume that? Well, because that's what they learned. Because nothing, they, they, these, they, can, they can go over here and take a, a course on Native Americans. They can go over here and take a, something about African Americans and so on. But... It's not required. What's required is, is, um, is to study about Europeans, okay? So I argue that they are responsible for the strife that occurs. So what they need to do is require that everybody, certainly in this country that is of any major segment of it, is required to be studied about. That's the first thing they should do. And some people get concerned, well, who are you going to choose to teach these courses? See, I don't care because I think it's more important to, uh, to have that as a fact than what's in the course. <laughs> okay, so that's one thing. So now, on the other part, I, I don't think the, other than that, I don't think the university, you can have a minor role. I don't think it has any major role in any of the rest of it. Now this is a, this has been a soapbox of mine since I was about 21 or 22. <laughs> I'm old now. You cannot go to an educational system and learn how to change the system. If you do, it's kind of something extra. It's a, it's a freak. It's not the typical. Because the purpose of an educational system is the maintenance and substances of the system. And anything they do different from that is counter to the system is not going to be accepted. So we have to, that's why I talk about the definitions of the situations and understanding things such that it can be defined differently. So it's how we define these issues. You know, define who's important and so on. But I, I used to, people say, well, we got to get people, go get educated. No, not formally, maybe informally. The civil rights movement had a little formal education behind it, but most of it was informal. And there were a few people, there was a professor I knew 
walked in class one day and told the students who he was teaching a class in Negro history. I wasn't in this class. I just wished I was so I could say I was in this class. And he said to them, what are you doing in class? What are you doing sitting here? History is being made down on the corner. But that, that was not everywhere. There was just a few places, okay, where you had people like that and events like that were happening on that corner. Uh, but by and large, it's, it's outside of universities. I don't think universities have any obligation for change, but I think the universities should have an obligation to have the debates and the discussions. And so then, if not in the university, what and where do you see potential avenues, strategies for change, bright, bright spots, and so forth? Oh, I could see it happening in the university, but I'm saying not by the university. In the university, but not by the university. Yes, I could see it in the university because a lot of the civil rights movement came <laughs> from, from universities, but not anything being taught there. Okay, so, so uh, I... And I think the extent to which we wait on that, we will never get change. In fact, I could go further, <laughs> I shouldn't, but people are waiting on churches to step up. They didn't step up in the civil rights movement. Churches did, but not denominations. And that's, people don't know that. So we need to know, that's why we need to know these histories. There are very few black denominations that supported the civil rights movement. There are many hundreds of churches, individual churches, usually Protestant and quite often Baptist, because in the Baptist church, it's owned by the local people. In most of these other religions, like the Methodist church, it's owned by the big body. Okay, so the individual churches, mostly Baptists, were the ones that did this, but many others did too, because the congregation just did it. Okay, but not the denomination. So. We can't wait on those kinds of things. We have to push it where we can. And one of the places that can be pushed is on campuses. But it's people, it's not the university, to me, the university. Other than the university having an appropriate curriculum for the society in which it is situated. And where then do the ideas that motivate positive change come from? People who talk about them, push them, I think. I really do. We don't have enough uh, forums and discussions nowadays, as, as us old-timers like to say. You don't know what it was like <laughs> when you could have one every week at a minimum. So it comes from those kinds of things, yes. Uh, we, 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 we don't have enough discussions. Uh, and when we do, um, many students don't attend them. In the olden days, they would. You would have to have larger places than we have nowadays for them. So, um, Drawing to a close, but one of the big areas that we haven't really talked about, directly at least, we've okay. kind of touched on it implicitly, but it wouldn't be a true interview with a sociologist if we didn't ask about intersectionality. So 
if we think about intersectionality and advocacy across multiple issue lines, how can that help us address some of the core problems of racism that we're experiencing in the status quo? Um, are there any specific issues that come to your mind related to intersectionality today? Well, Andy Popper told you that I was a good guy, but he, he didn't tell you that I'm a, I, I, I come from a different angle a lot of times. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and I don't know whether I'm ready to get in trouble with most of the people around here. <laughs> but I probably would find, try and find a way when I was 35 or so to moderate this, but I'm not going to do that now. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to answer your questions, and so chips will just have to fall where they may. Um, the short answer to your question is no. <laughs> okay, now you would obviously want to know why I would say no. <laughs> that, that, no, I don't think that dealing with intersectionality will help anything. I think dealing with uh, every group that has some disadvantage, dealing with every one of them will. But um, I'm not a great proponent of studying intersectionality. Um, but everybody, almost everybody I know is. <laughs> and here's why. Okay. See, I, I was involved with a lot of debates and discussion when, 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 when we were talking about civil rights and then we started adding gender rights, okay? And, and I like to think I was a part of a small group of people that helped the women's movement get kick-started, <laughs> you know, as a, not as a leader, but as one of the people in the, in, involved. So I'm a, I'm strong supporter and advocate of women's rights. Uh, however, To me, I'm a, more of a quantitative scholar than not. So to me, if you say intersectionality, then you say in, in quantitative work, we have independent variables and we have intersectional variables. Okay? Now, if you can demonstrate to me that after you take, after you study, say, let's say you're looking at race and gender and intersectionality. Okay, now if you analyze race and then analyze gender over and above race, or race over and above gender, however you want to go about it, and then if you can come up with some measure of intersectionality beyond those, then I'll be with you. Maybe there are some. I haven't been looking for them. I've just never heard them explained like that. It's hard to, I argue there is nothing left once you've studied all about race and all about gender, I argue there is nothing left. So intersectionality is just a nice way of saying we should look at both of these to me. But people have taken it to mean more. And I had a student who was big in it, and we had a kind of an argument, but she was not a quantitative student. So I brought 
like quantitative star who <laughs> know, knows more statistics than I do, I say, what do you think of this? And she agreed with me, <laughs> the quantitative one. And, and, and she said, well, I, there, there are these two books I want you to read, and maybe you'll change your mind, my student, who's now a professor herself, said. I haven't gotten around to reading those books. That's what I was hesitant <laughs> to say. Not that I object, but I just haven't gotten around because I would, I would want to read something that would cause me not to have my position if it's wrong. So as we come to a close, are there any other issues that we haven't talked about yet that you think are important in this current moment, historically, anything else we want to discuss before we close? Uh, well, I guess not to you guys, but if you were reporters, I would, if you were newspaper reporters, I, I, I would say they need to uh, stop putting so much credence into symbolism. For example, uh, when Barack Obama was elected, people made some made outrageous assumptions, and I only go into the more substantive outrageous assumptions because you know there was the assumption that he was a liberal. I argued that he wasn't. You know, so why you have that assumption? That was yet, but in the broad scope of things, I think people would argue and agree that he is he's a liberal, but not a progressive as some people thought he was. But how was that going to impact? Uh, improve, um, contribute to racial progress. Um, I didn't think so because I thought, uh, it, it, well, let me just stop and, and say his election in and of itself kept nobody alive. And it's not that I wasn't for his election. As I told the group, I cried like a lot of other African Americans cried when he was elected. But, but you reckon anyway, I was not as surprised as others because Colin Powell would have won easier. I don't know whether you know about that or not. Colin Powell was the leading Republican candidate in 2000. And if Colin Powell had won the, 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 the Republican nomination, I think he won the general election a lot easier than Barack Obama did in 2008. But I would, I guess that's all I would say is that we, we spend too much time um, with what I call symbolic stuff and not uh, real stuff. For example, we have gotten to the point of describing racism as a kind of philosophical attribute of individuals as to whether they are racist or not. Way away from the meaning of racism because it doesn't matter what it is, whether they are deep down in, it's the acts that they do. That's another thing that we need to emphasize with. And we get there by emphasizing this um, symbolism, I think. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us this afternoon, and thank you for this very interesting discussion. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>